and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I am Lemuel. And this week, the men, they're angry. And there are a dozen of them. I will follow their example and be very angry today. Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men. 1957. That's what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, how was your week? I was angry. Oh, no. Well, our roommate referred to this as, oh, you're doing your 12 Mad Men today. I'm like, well, Twelve no, Mad, yes. Mad Men. One of them was a madman. Right, one of them was. One of them was. was definitely what's Slattery's character from Mad Men, right. for sure. But um, no, my week was actually very, went very smoothly. It's recovery, again. A little bit every day. Every day. So I'm exercising and getting stronger. How was your week? It was okay. Kind of meh over the weekend. It was Mother's Day. I didn't think, I don't think I handled it well. <laughs> well... I didn't feel good, and then I laid down most of the day. That's also, a, grocery shopping. That's a perfectly acceptable response to Mother's Day. Yeah. I just was like, don't want to, and then mm. I didn't. So, <laughs> uh, this week, so we watched this movie on Friday night, and then today I was trying to refresh, and it's Trixie, because here's the problem with this movie. Ain't nobody got a name. <laughs> <laughs> right. They are jurors, one through twelve, and also there's a judge, and also there's a bailiff, and also, for a brief second, there's a defendant, and that's it. That's all the people in this movie. So, um, I guess we're gonna refer to them by their their numbers, actor names. Oh, okay. Though, we can do the numbers. Really? Yeah, we can do that. I think the numbers are gonna get. I don't know. I just had a deeply confusing sort of vision of like the prisoner number six. Number sure, four. we will tell you what their numbers are, <laughs> right. and we we can refer to them that way. But we will bounce back to the actual actor names because um, it's not. I don't want it to be a a puzzle for for y'all. So this movie, directed by Sidney Lumet. Screenplay by Reginald Rose, based on 12 Angry Men by Reginald Rose. We love when somebody gets to adapt their own thing. Stars Henry Fonta, Lee J. Cobb, Ed Begley, E.J. Marshall, Jack Warden. E.G. Marshall. E.G., I'm sorry. E.G. Marshall, Jack Warden. Um, And it came out in April of 1957. You didn't see it then because you were not no, born. No, I was not born yet. So what is your history with this movie? I saw this movie as part of, um, as like, I think I was watching courtroom movies at one point. This is classified as a courtroom drama, even right. though even though it, it the only one scene takes place in a courtroom, correct. which is the opening scene. The opening scene is in a courtroom. Morning. The rest of it is all in a jury room. Right. And it was inspired, Reginald Rose was a writer. And he was a writer who had actually, it's interesting, he wasn't, I didn't have a lot of formal education to him. Mm. He went to City College briefly before enrolling in the, I think it was the Army. Um, Yeah. And then when he came back, he began writing and he sold a screenplay or a, well, a screenplay to uh, Studio uh, One, Mm -hmm. which was... Uh, this was literally, this was referred to as the golden age of television. Yeah. When you had just these amazing, Rod Serling was writing for television. Yeah. Um, Harlan Ellison it's was writing for the, television. The, it was, the, this, this uh, was, I would argue, the first golden age of television. Right. Because well, I think we're kind of we're in another pretty one. pretty good right now, yeah. Um, but there were 
much fewer options. And we're talking about behind the scenes being great, Mm -hmm. not just, you know, the biggest stars you could possibly get are just on your television every week, which is how it is now. Sort of a a shift. Right. When there was uh, the, as we've discussed before, the difference, the way that theater owners or producers were taking people away from being at home watching television was to mount these enormous films like Ben-Hur or How the West was one of these um, even the films that we were talking about that we uh, saw last week. Yes. An epic war film. Not just a cut. No, no. It was a film that just rolled and kept the action mm-hmm, going perpetually. Mm-hmm. And it was followed by The Great Escape with two dozen stars in it. Yeah. Or The Magnificent Seven with a dozen stars in it right. or something. Um, or at least seven. This also has a dozen stars in it. You know how I know? It's called Twelve. Angry Man. So. One of the stars is Piglet Go. We'll yes. get there. <laughs> so this, uh, Reginald Rose had written this, uh, sold a play. He had then started writing regularly. He was writing for Twilight Zone. He was writing, uh, and then he was asked to write four years later. He had an experience for uh, a rather on a murder trial, something very similar, where he got into a, he described He was a, a juror? He was a okay. juror. There he got go. into a violent, almost physically violent, eight-hour argument with his fellow jurors. And he was... he on the Henry Fonda side? I guess so. Oh, we don't know. We oh, don't know. Well, he... he can't talk about it, really. Uh, yes, he can. Oh, Once he can it's now. done, oh. it is... You can talk about it. Once it's finished, it, it you can talk about it. During... No, you cannot talk about it. But once it's finished, my understanding is he can. Well, in any event... I'm not sure if he was the Henry Fonda or if he was one of the guys who gets gotcha. persuaded, but yeah. he was at odds with his fellow jurors, and it led into this mm-hmm. ferocious argument that lasted for hours on end. Um, he didn't describe what happened at the end of this, but said when he got out of that room, it left him shaken, and he thought that was more drama than I've ever seen put onto a screen. Right. So he wrote that when he was asked to produce another screenplay for... Um, Studio One, he wrote this story. Uh-huh. And it, it was it starred Robert St- Cummings. For television. For television. Gotcha. Robert Cummings, who was a really sort of a likable, light romantic lead at the time. Okay. And it, this really gave Robert Cummings' television career had a lot more weight than his movie career, I think. Then he started doing stuff for Alfred Hitchcock and other things after this. Mm-hmm. But um, what... Uh, it got picked up by Sidney Lumet, or rather it got picked up to be made into a film. It's been turned into a play again. Yeah, it feels like a play. It's shot right. very much like a play. It's very easy to see it as a play because it is all in one room. Right. And that's what he wanted to capture, which is the um, the unities, the Aristotelian unities. Mm-hmm. Aristotle's principles of unity of action, unity of place, and unity of time. Yeah. So... It all takes place in a limited amount of time, in a limited place, and restricted the action. That I didn't watch the clock, but I think it's pretty close to real yeah. time, which is wild, because it should take longer than this to do what they do, but that's right. fine. Well, it's it takes place, I think there are passages that take place in real time. There are breaks where they stop for a minute, or everyone goes, you know, yeah, somebody yeah, goes so to the bathroom, true, yeah. and then they'll just start take again, a and I think break and, those yeah. passages, you know, are real are, time. Are short, yeah. Mm. Um, so you saw this first? Yeah, I, I saw it first when, after watching Witness for the Prosecution. Came out the same year. Uh, was and, up against it for awards. <laughs> so. And, um, and I was just really impressed with it. 
I mean, it, it's it's a hard film to get over when you watch it. Yeah, it's uh, it, now watching mm-hmm. it now in twenty twenty two. I've seen it before. I've, I I think I saw it. You know, I feel like I saw it before, but then watching it, I didn't remember. I didn't remember a great deal of it either. A lot of it. So maybe yeah. it's possible that I had never seen it before. Let's let's just go with that because I right. it, it was it, a lot of it felt new to me. So there were parts I remembered. I think maybe I saw the remake. Okay. So the remake came out in what ninety seven with George C. Scott. Yeah, George C. Scott and Jack Lemmon is playing Jack Juror Lemmon. Number Eight, which is the the one who turns the tide for everyone. Right. And Which makes perfect sense. Right. So, so let's get into the synopsis, shall we? Mm-hmm. That's the other question I want to ask you before we get into this real quick. Have you ever been on a jury? Um, I have never sat on a jury. I have gotten very close. I've been stuck for three days waiting to see if I'll get called, you know, in the actual yeah. pool. And, um, and no. And I, the closest I got was being asked by one of the teams for the lawyers for the defense. Uh-huh. Um, you know, not the defense. I guess the, the, the district attorney, because it was a person. The prosecution. The prosecution. prosecution. Then, yeah. um, it was a criminal case. Then, right. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you have any issues or uh, bad associations with the police? They said, y- yes. Yes. I live right. in Oakland, California. What are you talking about? But you said you don't have a criminal record. No. But you have bad association to the police. Yes. Mm. Was this because of representations in the media? It's like, no. <laughs> and then immediately it's like, Work. thank you very thank much. You very much. <laughs> right. I will go ahead and, yeah, um, strike. Right. It's like, no. I, th- I imagine a lot of their case depended on um, uh, police, police testimony. testimony. Yeah. So, As a criminal case always does. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, I... There was a period of time where mm-hmm. every year you got a jury summons and I continued to not get right. them. I have I have received two jury summons in my entire life. I have been registered to vote with the DMV since I was 18 years old. So that is 24 years they could have asked me and two that they actually did. And neither time I had to go to a courthouse. I want to be on a jury so yeah, badly. I, I will never be put on a jury. I know I'm not what they want. Uh-huh. And so it will never happen. Well, that's what but, I had to oh discover. Oh my God, I want to be put on a jury. I discovered, so just aside from the police question, they got rid of another person for having strong religious views. Do you believe in right and wrong? Yes. I'm a Sunday school teacher. It's like... Yeah, that guy was out too. It's like, well, you know, I'm... yeah. The the prosecution doesn't necessarily want, or the um the defense doesn't right. Necessarily and so want there that. was they were just like weeding people out, and eventually after th- the and the things mm-hmm. that though I've worked on jury selection, right. I was these not in criminal c- court. Uh-huh. I I was a civil, uh, I was in civil law. Um, she says like she was ever an attorney. I was a paralegal, y'all. So <laughs> I remember those days. You were you um, did a great deal. But uh we did jury selection and the things that you get like what um, what people want on a jury on either side is very, very specific. Uh-huh. And I am neither of those things. Um, and now that I've worked in law, mm-hmm. although I do know attorneys who have been put on juries, so so it's not a hundred percent of the time that they won't be placed on a jury. Uh, one of the least real. Okay, I love law shows. I none of them are realistic. Right. 
but I love them. I love a law procedural. I love a courtroom thing, right? Yeah. And one of the least realistic things I ever saw was on a show that only lasted one season, like three years ago, maybe, wherein the judge, like the lead judge in this courthouse in this t- in whatever city it was, like New Orleans or something, mm-hmm. ended up on a jury at one point. I'm like, no fucking way do either of those attorneys want that man on the right. jury. They don't want you to have critical thinking skills. Also, y'all, they don't want you to do any of the shit that these people do. Well, these people mm-hmm. break every instruction that a juror actually has, other than coming out, you know, unanimous or not unanimous. I'm not sure how far, aside from, and I, I, I'm really curious now, knowing that... And we'll that, go through the different right. things that they do that it's like, you can't do that. Knowing that... Um, that this was based on an actual experience he has. Mm-hmm. I really wonder how far well, here's the thing. it went. Here's the thing. Okay. I, I will say that I am, I do not have firsthand experience with, but mm-hmm. I believe in my soul to be true. Okay. No one is supposed to bring anything from the outside into that jury room. All you're supposed to do is base what you decide on right. the evidence presented, period, end of discussion. And that includes removing anything that the jury, that the judge says, strike that from the record, or the witnesses will will, will right. um, disregard that sentence. Here's the thing. We're human fucking beings. We cannot go into a room and forget everything we ever thought or knew beforehand. Every jury in this country is made up of people who have seen things like this movie and things like yeah, any movie where there's jurors, mm-hmm. and they have their opinions about things before they walked into the door. Into right. the door, they have their opinions about cops. They have their like. You can try and be impartial and open and and all of that. They also have a a thought that they know about law because they've seen a thousand order episodes of Law and Order, and none of the stuff on Law and Order is particularly factually accurate or true to what is requirement of, of the law. The uh, part of the uh, kind of well, what you get from Law and Order mm-hmm. is that. Jack McCoy is constantly bending the rules in really creative ways. Which is what attorneys do. Right, which is what attorneys do. So if if a person believes that it's possible to bend them in those ways, it's like, no, that depends entirely on the judge. The judge can just throw this out, and it's nonsense. And and we've also had experiences with judges who completely ignored any evidence. uh, Judges don't need to... They don't need to justify their decisions in any way. Now, if they're blatant and they keep getting called out and right. shit gets overturned, then they'll get maybe reprimanded or, or removed from the bench. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's a lifetime appointment that Trump gave to a dipshit when he was 32, so we're fucked forever. Well, but yeah. um, the, the, the other side of that, like I said, is jury rooms are populated by 12 individuals who have their own life experience. And if they think that they know something about 
circumstances, they're gonna apply those in 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 their decision making. That's the way that human beings work. You can't just well ask me to walk into this room and like forget that I knew right. every, anything before I walked in here. And every American thinks they know the law, this and is... none of them do. And that includes the police. The Dunning Kruger effect. Yes. A cognitive bias whereby people with limited knowledge or competence in a given intellectual or social domain greatly overestimate their own knowledge or competence in that domain relative to objective criteria mm -hmm. or to the performance of their peers or people in general. We think That's we a wonderful know, definition. Yes, we think we know the best, and right. we also think that we know the laws of our land, but we don't. They're right. written to be obfuscating. Mm -hmm. They're written to make you confused. Here's how I know that nobody knows the laws, including and but not limited to the police officers who are put in charge to uh, administer the laws. Administer, yes. Um, the constant current trend of cops who are being filmed playing pop music thinking that that is going to get your stuff taken down and not let not allow it to go viral. Lord, is that a thing? So cops are getting filmed mm -hmm. and immediately they will start jamming a Taylor Swift song or something so that they get quote copyrighted and YouTube will take that down or Facebook will take that down. That's not what happens. And these are police officers who should fucking know that that's right. not what happens. And after the first one went viral, and everyone saw it, they should at the very least go, hmm, that's weird. I thought it would work, but clearly it didn't for this guy. But they don't even make that basic realization, and they double down and they double down, and there's multiples of these happening. YouTube will maybe send any... They'll slap an ad on the front of it, and they'll send the revenue to Taylor Swift right. because she has the rights to the music. But they're I, not going to pull the thing down. I did down. not know this was a thing now. This is a thing. This is a uh, very common thing well, right see, now. Yeah, I've I, I kind of divorced myself from the police harassment um, news. Fair enough. Because For self-preservation. Well, yes. Because it's like, yeah, I just, I can't anymore. Yeah. So these are police officers mm -hmm. who should know the laws, who right. do not, clearly do not fucking know the laws. And they don't learn from other people doing it and going viral looking like a fucking moron. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's aggravating. No, 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 but, no. So everybody goes into a jury room thinking that they know. Well, if, if it wasn't objected to or if the objection was sustained, then that means X, Y, and Z. You don't know why. You don't know why a judge sustained or didn't sustain an objection. You don't. If they didn't ask that question, which I would have asked, it's because they didn't want to hear the answer. That might no. be true. That might not mm -hmm. be true. But that is a thing that you're going to go into a jury room thinking. Um, the, the defendant didn't speak for his, on his own behalf. That's a big one in criminal cases. Right. Um, they, there are multiple reasons why you wouldn't do that. And a lot of them come down to prosecution didn't prove their case. I don't need to put my client on the, right. on the witness stand. Um or they just would not handle the stress of that very well because it's fucking stressful. Um, I mean, there are all uh, all the way down the line, 
everything that happens in the trial, a juror has an assumption as to why that did or didn't happen, and they never know if that's what it is. And all of those assumptions are brought with them into the jury room, where they all do... I have a feeling every juror... Like, if you recorded every Mm -hmm. jury room and made sure that they followed the rules of the uh, that that are actually set aside for jurors uh, jurors to follow there's not a there's not a ruling that would stand because every one of them is going to be broken yeah. at some point by someone one of those jurors didn't do what they were supposed to do i guarantee it so you can't i mean there's the there's, system that we have relies is, on fallible people mm-hmm. And, um, well, I mean, gosh, we should... By okay. design. Right, by design. So, <laughs> so there's a reason that this is a jury of his peers, right? and this is a 12 white men on a jury who are going to try and, or to either convict or acquit an 18-year-old Puerto Rican man who has been accused of murdering his father. Right. That is the case that we're That's the case. About. Good. I, I wanted to I get that because we'll you don't there. really get a sense of the way that the film is done. You see them at first coming into the, the jury room mm-hmm. and you see them, the foreman trying to get their attention because he thinks it's an open and shut case. Mm-hmm. And he goes around and starts ticking off the names on his uh, he did, Well, the, the bailiff starts and, and just makes sure everybody's there. Mm-hmm. And then the the jury foreman, right? Who is is that juror number? He's not juror number one. Let's see, juror one, yes. Oh, is he? Okay. And he's a a football coach, which you mentioned. He's his kind arms, of his arms, his sturdy wits. looking. Martin Balsam, good look. God, back in the day, these are all actors that I recognize from watching a lot of older movies and television. So yeah. it was kind of fun watching this. We don't really have many character actors nowadays. So yeah. when you watch a whole room full of character actors supporting Henry Fonda, it's... Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So so before they all go back there, the most bored judge that's ever judged is sitting and giving them the instructions, mm-hmm. indicating that this is a murder case, and if they find him guilty unanimously... He is going to receive the electric chair. He is going to be sentenced to die. Now, a lot of cases, the the guilt or innocence, or the guilt or not guilt of the party is uh, decided first, and then sentencing is done after. But because this is a capital case, it's all at the same time, Mm -hmm. which is extra stress for that jury. Um, And then he releases them. But he, like, this man's life is on the line and he looks he looks so completely bored and like he doesn't want to be there. The judge and does. It, that yeah and that pissed me and off. The, the right kid off looks the terrified. And and then we see one shot of the kid as the mm-hmm. as the scene changes and it, he is yeah like sort of spotlighted and he looks terrified. Right. Uh and then yeah we go back to the to the room. The bailiff calls roll and then juror number one, who is our foreman, Martin Balsam, as you said, ripped his arms, <sighs> tries to get everybody's attention. Because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, like, opening the windows. It's extremely hot. It's right. also, like... Uh, this is, there was a, I remember the first episode of Cheers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a joke where all the guys in the bar are talking about what movie does, has the most sweat in it. 
Mm-hmm. And one guy's like, I think it's Alien. No, I think it's Cool Hand Luke. And it's like, 12 Angry Men would be really good because they're sweating. They're sweating. Constantly in this All film. but one of them are sweating constantly. Right. And then he also does have right. a, a trickle sweat, at yeah. some point. I do think Alien's a sweatier movie, though. Maybe even Alien 2. It's a oh, dry heat, so you wouldn't notice it. Oh, Bill Paxton, I love you. Okay. Yeah, they're opening the windows, they're taking off their jackets. There's mm-hmm. a bathroom back there, so one of them uses the restroom. And the world's filthiest hand. Well, Six of them are smoking dispenser. various things. Yes, oh Ugh. God, yeah. One of those towels, like rolling towels. Yeah. Ugh, so gross. That he puts on his face. I'm just like, oh. Well, I, I think when you unroll it, the part that comes up is is clean. But everything yeah, sh- beneath that is just this hanging drapery of it's clean filth. until it goes back around, and then it's not. I mean, that's it's one. It's well, I do, it's but one just thing. Ha- depending on how often they change it. That's well, I don't think they ever change it. I just they dry it off. I have been in a <laughs> so a gross. gas station in Arizona where that was, and it looked like it had never been changed. Never been I'm changed. like, oh, okay, never well, there we go. Please don't touch it. Jur number one is like okay. This is going to be easy. I think it's pretty straightforward. Now, the other thing is, they are sent to the jury room at like 5 p.m., which is would never happen now. Now they'd be like, we're, we're, we're they wouldn't even have gotten instructions that day. Uh-huh. They would have come in the next day and gotten instructions to start fresh because here's what they don't think is going to happen that you're going to make a decision in a capital case in an hour. Like, no. Yeah. What? They're going to let well, you go um, home and you're coming back the next day. The implication is that, as Juror 8 later points out, this was sort of set up Yeah. so this kid would fail because they're just like, yeah, we don't want the trouble of doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well. But So they think that it's an open and shut case. Maybe that's the explanation. Yeah. We're going to talk about defense counsel in a little bit, too. But so they do a, a pretty pretty quick off the bat... Um, they go kind of over the 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 basics of the case, right? Mm-hmm. The na- a neighbor testified witnesses witnessing the defendant stab his father from her window, um, which is across the train tracks, right? Um, well, an L was passing ed- through the yes through the pa- through on a passing elevated train. Mm-hmm. They call it the L. Which was weird to me because the only place that I know that calls it the L is Chicago. Right. This takes place in New York, but it is an elevated. That the L mm-hmm. in Chicago is for the loop, right? Right. The L here is elevated train, and then a, the there the neighbors. So that was the the neighbor across the street, and then the neighbor downstairs testified that he heard the defendant threaten to kill his father, and then his father. His body hitting the ground, and then as he opened his door, he saw the defendant running down the stairs. Uh, the boys had a violent past, had recently purchased a swip- switchblade of the same type as was found at the murder scene, um, but he claimed that he lost it, and the knife at the scene had been cleaned of fingerprints. So that's where we're at. Juror number seven wants to get out of there for a baseball game. That's uh, Jack Warden. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never seen him so young. I was like, who is that? I know that face, but not like that. It looks different. And I knew Jack Warden from like the 80s when yeah. he was like a certifiable old man at that point. <laughs> and here you can see all of that, but in a like a little baby face. <laughs> and he's got a hat on. A juror number seven. 
Supposing we take five minutes, so what? Let's take an hour. The ball game doesn't start till eight o'clock. Yeah. It's an actual, that's his line. Yeah. And everyone, this is what I miss about modern films in a way, and I've discussed that with you. There is not as much, there's not a lot of quotable lines in modern films. There'll be really good scenes, but just the, the yeah. depth of the writing here is really, it's really, really, very it's really good. good. Well, that's why it feels like a play. Right. And I was like, this is based on a play? No, a play was made of this? That's interesting. Right. But it started with a television play. Mm-hmm. Teleplay, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they do a preliminary vote and they think they're going to get out of there easy because it's 11 to, oh, one. <laughs> Juror eight, our Henry Fonda, our hero, father of Jane and Peter, uh, is, he's got, uh, questions, he's got question so his line look this boy's been kicked around all his life you know living in a slum his mother dead since he was nine he spent a year and a half in an orphanage while his father served a jail term for forgery that's not a very good head start had a pretty terrible 16 years i think maybe we owe him a few words that's all Mm -hmm. that's the basis of his like defense but it's like really one of the things that henry fonda does really well is communicate when he's doing a part like this the kind of humanity of a person yes yes yeah. And so he's going, we can't just, this guy's been... We we owe him more than right. five minutes of our life, of our time. He's going to die. Right. He's going to die. We're, we're going to kill him. So let's, let's be mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable about it, at least. Right. And he doesn't think that, maybe he doesn't think that he did it. Right. He's not sure. He has reasonable he's doubt. He's not sure, sh- which is all you need. Is, hey, guys, criminal case, especially yeah. capital case. Beyond a reasonable doubt is the proof, burden of proof put on the prosecution. You have to prove to me beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a vague term that means literally nothing. Well, that's a hard one to fill, but at the same time, when somebody is going to die. Yes. No, uh, for me, I'm going to need to see a video of him murdering somebody. Uh Yeah. Like, that's about where we need to be because I don't feel like any evidence. I mean... There are some cases where I was like I would probably vote guilty, but not based on this kind of evidence. Because yeah. I was I was even like, Mm-mm. but Fonda's first piece of aha gotcha evidence is, well, it was a very specific type of knife, and I've never seen a knife like that. And this juror number eight pulls from his pocket an identical fucking knife. They have the bailiff bring the original yeah. knife in and he pulls from and his it's pocket a switchblade. A switchblade. Yeah, that becomes really important later on too. It does. So it's a switchblade with a like a um, wave blade. Um, so it's but it's not a straight knife. Mm-hmm. So once they have the one in for evidence from evidence which is not in a bag or anything right. which it's is just handed wild to, them. to me. They just hand them a knife. I'm like oh that's good. Uh, he, uh, juror number eight, in a court, so this is pre, you know, metal detectors, clearly, because right. you don't get to bring a switchblade switch into a courtroom anymore. That's not allowed. Right. Um, pulls that one out of his pocket and was like, and says, I was walking through his neighborhood the other night, last night, and I walked into the store, um... Because uh, the shopkeeper mm-hmm. had said, 
I know I sold that knife to him because it's it's unusual. Right. And um, there's only one like it. And he goes into a store in the same neighborhood, and he's like, he sold me this one for eight bucks. Maybe he says there's only one at a time to keep the right. price up. I don't know if that's a high price. I don't know what 1980, 1957 Maybe it is, yeah. is. Seems like a lot, though. Um, and so he can't believe that this knife is so unique right. that somebody else in the neighborhood wouldn't have one. And I'm just like, no. So this is definitely no. not allowed. So to to, and I don't know if this is okay. I want to try to go over the jurors really quick because so far we've just talked about juror number one and juror number eight. Yes. Uh, juror number two is John Fiedler, who's a. I don't even know which one's juror number two. He's a. It's the thing you only really know like four of them right. or five of them. Several of them are just kind right. of. But there's some, and I'm not going to mention all of them necessarily, but the ones that, that get talked to that are important. Uh, John Fiedler is a tiny little man. Oh, Piglet. He's Piglet. Who is the voice of Piglet from the Disney... When he started talking, I was like, every cartoon right. is doing a, a, a version of this voice. And you were like, well, he's Winnie the Pooh. And then you're like, excuse me, he's, he's Piglet. Piglet from, from, <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh. The Disney uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, yeah. Animated yes. films. Because I was like, well, he's not Jim, what's his name? That right. is Pooh. Um, yeah, John Fiedler. He is a very little man who looks like he could voice Piglet. Right. He, he... <laughs> Lee J. Cobb, who is an amazing actor. He was the original Willie Loman. Yes. And he carries some of that kind of wounded energy. He's sure number three, and he's pissed that he's there, but he wants to put this man in the fucking electric chair. And That's all he wants out of his whole life. He, his, his reasoning really has to do with the fact that he's been rejected by his son. Yeah. And he's he's really sad. He carries a picture of his kid in his wallet. Yeah. Back when he was a kid. And, you know. Yeah. Uh, E.G. Marshall, who's this very up, who plays juror number four. Four. Who's a very uptight... He reminded me with his glasses. Very, uh -huh. First of all, he's the one who doesn't sweat yeah. almost the whole time. And he reminded me of Slugworth for whatever reason oh, wow. in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the original one. Um, he's not. And I don't know. Why. I think it's just austereness and mm -hmm. seriousness yeah. that did it. Yeah. And so he he was the voice of National Geographic specials and things. I mean, he was an actor. We saw him earlier. In um, in Creep Show, yes, he was in the final segment playing the fastidious man again, yeah, fastidious. who gets overrun by cockroaches yes. in his apartment, and he was really great in that. That the fact that he even conceded to having cockroaches on him that was amazing. Yeah, um, Jack Klugman, yes, the original Odd Couple from his well. juror number five. Uh, yes, one of and he's um, the original television Odd Couple, I right. Say. Uh, as juror number five, and he has a couple of very good um, parts. Right. He's a poor man. Like, he comes from slums. He comes from slums. He's white, but he comes from slums. So when juror number ten, Ed mm. Begley, who, how did yeah. that man have his son? I can't figure it out. Because he looks like a bridge troll. <laughs> Sorry, that's really, that's unflattering and mean. But that's what he looks like. And then to have Ed Begley Jr. be this long, right. you know, narrow, it's sort of very 
also fastidious person mm -hmm. be his son is super weird. Um, but that dude is racist as fuck <laughs> right off the bat. He is really Ed Begley. I, yeah, and he talks about he he and uh, Lee Cobb Lee, uh, Lee Cobb both talk about those people. Mm -hmm. But when Ed Begley does it, it's sort of. It's earlier in the film and it's broader. And yeah. Klugman takes it as an affront on poor people. Right. People who live in slums and come from slums, you know, um, who don't have any privileges um, that these people and clearly do have. And eventually, yeah, Jack Klugman's character warms to the idea that maybe he's not innocent. It's almost as if in the beginning he's willing to vote him as guilty because he thinks... And part of it is, I think, to fit in. Right. So that he doesn't sort of out himself as not having not belonging here, but he does. I mean, he's right. just like, I, I was raised in the sum. Do you want to say anything about me? Right. He, he, he really... The things that Begley says oh. specifically... Yeah. ...get into Klugman's head. Yeah, they, they press those buttons and he yeah. starts reacting. Um, juror number six is uh, Edward Binns, and he is the he's a house painter, but he has his own principles. And yeah, he's um he 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 will throw down if he will. Right. But he's he's less. He's not right. Not he's as not one of the ones that comes. To, him and right. um, I think uh, so. Twelve is Robert Weber, and he's the madman. Mm -hmm. Um, what he's an ad guy. He's definitely, you know, going to work with uh, John Hamm's character in another 10 years, for sure. Uh, and he's, but he is so slick and put together and, you know, the probably the best looking of the group other than maybe Henry Fonda. He loves, I think what distinguishes him in this film is his ability to sort of like try to break people up with stories he's heard or jokes mm -hmm. he's 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 just that guy. He's the the charming guy who gives goes good at cocktail parties. And I feel like he's right. He's also there's a weird linguistic thing that he talks about because he's telling a story. He's he's constantly being interrupted telling his stories with people like, um, "Could we just like do what we're here to do?" Right. And he's like, "Oh, sorry, I was trying to lighten the mood or whatever." Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how one of his bosses always um, when he's asking for ideas. Um, we'll we'll do these little bon mots like right. um, run a flagpole and see if anyone salutes. It. See if anyone salutes, right? right. Which is like, uh, like that's a common thing now, but right. I guess it wasn't then, and right. it was like the start of that weird linguistic yeah. quirk that is now sort of made its way into a larger thing. I thought that was an interesting yeah. uh, touch for him. Um, juror number eleven. Is George Vosevic. Mm -hmm. He's playing a European watchmaker. Yes. Who's now a new American citizen, and he also has a really important speech. He has this speech that apparently influenced Judge Sotomayor, who saw it with her, her now husband at the time. They went on a date, they saw this movie. His speech about the importance of the judicial system that you can yeah. have these. That was her career afterwards. Yeah. That and watching Perry Mason, apparently, on television. Right. Although um, she also realized well, yes, that and she, she, you should not she do what they do don't in this ever do, She was at, uh, apparently there was a screening of this film at, at a law school where she was giving a speech and she said, oh, no, this movie was absolutely formative in making me into a judge or a career in law. However, don't do anything that you see in this film. Everything is horribly illegal. Yeah. This is not how it works. Uh, but, yeah. And then Joseph Sweeney is 
So no, it's number nine, and I don't even... He's Mr. McArdle, who is this older man. Oh, yeah, he keeps... he. Okay, yes, that's right. And he... Spoiler alert, while we're getting into it, mm-hmm. he's the first person to change right. the vote. So, um, after the first vote, mm-hmm. uh, Juror 8, that's right. um, Fonda, Fonda uh, you know, brings out his knife... Uh-huh. says what he says like we got to give him like at least right an hour of our time like that's not too much to ask for an hour of our time and yeah so he, he the the knife alone his personal walk about time town and purchase of a knife have have given him reasonable doubt which are not things that can give you reasonable doubt legally but sure here we are right. and and once he presents that case to much bluster from uh, specifically Begley and Lee Cobb mm. uh, they he says let's do another vote I will abstain right. if you all vote unanimously guilty I will change my vote and go along with you. Mm-hmm. But if anybody has, has changed their minds, right. then we give it some more discussion. And so they do a blind vote, and there's a not guilty. Right. And that not guilty is the older gentleman. Right. Um, and he's just like, no, I mean, I'm not sure. And I want to discuss it some more. That's his thing. He's First of all, Fonda never says, I believe he's not guilty. I believe that, or I believe that he's innocent. He says, I don't know. Right. They have not proven to me that he is guilty. And that is what they were supposed to do. Exactly. And so I don't know. And I don't know is mm-hmm. not good enough to send a man to the electric chair, which is correct. And that juror, uh, what I liked about his, his character is he's there supporting juror number eight. Yeah. Because he says you're, there's a man standing alone. Yeah. And that's all, like a terrible thing to do, but it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I'm going to support him because I'm not convinced either. Yeah. I was going along with the rest of you. So it's... Um, yeah. And yeah. Once, they, once they do the, not, the, the secret ballot and get one guilty, or mm-hmm. one not guilty, right. juror number three, Lee Cobb, the, I would say the antagonist of the yes. film, immediately jumps on Jack Klugman. As the the one who was soft because of right. the, he he also grew up in the slums, and he doesn't say that he doesn't do it. Um, he's trying to defend himself and like say you know get out of my face or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's when Juror Nine is like, it wasn't him, it was me. Right. So you're gonna yell at me? I'm an old man. Go ahead. Like <laughs> bring it on, motherfucker. Um. And. Then the the is it the noise of the train the, that's next? The noise of the train that happens next because the the claim is the woman across the way saw the body fall, saw the man stabbed. Uh huh. Then she hears the oh no no it was the guy downstairs. It's the guy downstairs. The man downstairs mm-hmm. who has a limp is an older man has a limp, and. Um, her, but heard the young man tell the older man, or tell tell his father, I'm going to kill you, then heard a thump, mm-hmm. 
And then he ran from the back of his apartment, right. his bed, which is it was about midnight when this happened, to the front door where he opened it and saw him, uh, saw the young man fleeing the building. Now, they discussed that the old man uh, couldn't move very quickly because mm-hmm. he did have He a limped limp. his way up to the, the witness stand, yeah. Um, and needed assistance, I think they yeah. said. And so Fonda, they have a a map of the house, and Fonda walks out the 47 yeah. feet or whatever it would be to um, get from the back of the house to the front of the house. And they figure it'd be, it, it, it would take no more than 15 seconds for the kid to run away. Right. Um, could he have made it in 15 seconds? And so they go, they set it up. There's a lot of talking over. They set it up, and then he, I think it's um, it's uh, Piglet <laughs> that mm. does the timing. And uh, Fonda walks with a little bit of a limp. They're like, he'd go faster than that, so he does speed up. But by the time he gets back, all the way back to and for, fro, however far he'd have to go, the timer stops, and it's 41 seconds. Right. And they're like, well, that doesn't prove anything. And I'm like, well, no, it doesn't. You're right. But reasonable doubt. Right. But exactly. also, this is another thing that the jurors don't get to do. This ha- would have to be presented as evidence in the trial. Uh, facts, not in evidence. Assumes facts, not in evidence. That switchblade being easy to purchase in that, in that neighborhood assumes facts, not in evidence. This time trial assumes facts. Not in evidence. But what he's doing is that he's doing the defense's job. Yes, he is. Because <laughs> as it's brought up in the, the film, mm-hmm. that the public defender who's yeah. defending this kid yeah. seemed to be just sort of like going through the paces. He didn't he didn't seem to want to do the job and he, he was didn't missing. Seem to want to do it. And their response mm-hmm. is, well, no, because they know he, he knows he's guilty. And the and the the response by right. some of the people are, No, he was assigned, he didn't have a choice. And I'm going to say, I'm going to give Aaron McCarthy's patented thing about defense counsel. Uh-huh. You need defense counsel to put on the strongest possible case. Why? Because most convictions that are overturned are overturned on the basis of poor representation. Mm-hmm. Of Evidence that was not presented. A big problem with our legal system is there's a a loophole there where if it was available but wasn't presented at the time of of trial, you can't admit it later. Mm. So if you're but but you can argue that you're you had ineffective counsel if the evidence was there and it wasn't admitted. But those two things fight each other a lot, and, and, and that's why a lot of acquittals don't happen. But most acquittals or, or most over or convictions, uh, conviction overturns are ineffective counsel. Right. You need the defense counsel to put on the strongest possible case, or that person who is guilty may not stay guilty. <laughs> um, and it is the most thankless job in our legal system, the defense counsel, specifically public defender. Yeah. It is paid terribly. They are 
way overworked. There are way more cases than they have time for. They do not have the, the financial resources to do all the legwork that is required to put on the strongest possible case. Most of them do excellent jobs anyways. Mm. Well, at drinks with their fucking DA co-workers and friends a lot of the time who are like shitting on them for defending scumbags or, or or similar things constantly. And it's like, if not me, then this doesn't work. Yeah. Every single defendant is guaranteed the best possible defense. Now, everyone, I think, very, very... I would say the large majority of people in the United States don't fundamentally understand that. Like, they just don't get it. They think either they should do a shitty job to get people locked up who are clearly guilty. That's going to get them unlocked out, you know, unlocked much earlier. It's That's a bad strategy. Or they should just not do that job at all. Nobody should do that job. And it's like, well, then then we have to have a new justice system because our whole system is dependent on yeah. this, this job that is shit on constantly. Um, this attorney clearly didn't do no, a very didn't. good job. Didn't do the legwork that these people are doing in the jury room now. Unfortunately, the legwork in the jury room is facts, not in evidence. And you cannot base your decision on facts, not in evidence. That's well, yeah. <laughs> The other thing that they do, they talk about with the... So it would have taken this, uh, this gentleman a long time to get across. And also, um, they, they talk about... You could yell, I've, every one of us has yelled, I'm going to kill you without meaning it. Right. So if you hear somebody yell, I'm going to kill you, that doesn't necessarily mean the next thing that happens is they kill someone. <laughs> like, that's not the way our language works. But they talk about why would this old man lie about what he saw? And then juror number nine, the, the old man juror, yeah. is like for attention. And he, he, he gives a... Which, uh, again, assumes facts. Right. He gives a very kind of pathetic description <laughs> yes. of this person who just wants to... Who's just who's lonely right. and not important. And suddenly, all these these police officers and these attorneys and this judge is asking them questions. And right. this jury, juror, jury of 12 people is looking at him and wants to know what he has to say. And he is the most important person. Yeah. And that is a possibility... Or like a, like a possible reason that somebody would lie about what they saw. And they talk about how he might not even realize that he's lying. Yeah. We lie to our, we talk ourselves into false memories all the time. That is also a human thing. It's why witness testimony is the worst. <laughs> it's the worst thing to rely on. Because we tell ourselves stories. And as we tell those stories or retell those stories the telling becomes the story, even if we've embellished or fudged yeah. or, you know, tweaked or made ourselves look a little better and them look a little worse or them look a little better and we look a little worse, you know, depending on yeah. the bent of our psychology. And um, so that, but that is the story that he tells is, 
I I know I'm an oh, I'm a lonely old man and I understand the impetus to do this. And I'm not saying he got up there and perjured himself mm-hmm. because he might think that he's telling the truth because it brings him the things that he wants, right, which exactly. is attention. Um and then they uh at this point juror 5 then changes his vote and juror 11 um but juror 11's reason is i don't know why he would have come back that was my first question too mm-hmm. the he was the child the kid was he's not a child he's an 18 year old man uh, but he's a kid was apprehended coming back from what he says he went to the movies but he couldn't remember the movies the he movie saw. that he saw right. who was in it or what happened or at the the very first time the second time he was questioned yeah. he did remember it yeah. cuz the first time he's questioned which is his, Right as he is apprehended for the right. murder of his father, that he, if he was at the movies, found out about right, right now. And his father's and he's in dead, shock. and he's in the next room, and yeah. he's in the kitchen somewhere being interrogated by the cops. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, he's yeah, in shock. Weirdly, you could forget literally everything about what just happened if that's, right. yeah. So, um, but he's like, well, why would he have gone? Why would he have gone back? Because he's apprehended returning to the apartment building mm-hmm. while the police are there because they've gotten this, the uh, the call from the the neighbor next door and the neighbor downstairs. Right. Um, I think maybe just the neighbor next door who saw the actual crime. And then the neighbor downstairs said, oh, yeah, this right. is what I heard and this is what I saw. But I don't think he called the police. I think the, the the neighbor across the street called the police, the woman across the street, who we'll get to in a minute. But he's like, why would he have gone back that night? Like, they were there sense, like a half yeah. an hour later. Why would he have gone back a half an hour later if he knew that he just killed his father? And he could probably clearly see police at the building. Why would he have continued to go to his apartment? if he knew that there was a dead body there that he had just left there. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so that was, that's his reasonable doubt. He And, and he says that he, w- he was bothered by it the whole time. So now he he's, that's his reasonable doubt, and that's why he's changed his vote to not guilty. And so after they, they, they time this thing, and it comes out to be 41 seconds, way longer than it would have, taken for the the perpetrator to run away Lee Cobb is so pissed off that he goes for Henry Fonda's character and yells I'll kill him yeah because he disproving right (laughs) Henry Fonda is sort of actively baiting him saying why on earth are you doing this you've been hell-bent on killing this kid. Yeah. Since we came into the room, you already made up your mind. Yeah. You're fighting everything that says anything to the contrary. Yeah. You're taking it out on the people who are agreeing with me yes. now that there's room for reasonable doubt. Right. And it's like, are you some kind of sadist? And he comes out and says it. And at that point, Cobb blows his stack, goes yeah. after him. You know, they have to be... Proves to, his point about, right. we say, I'll kill you all the time. And clear, are you gonna... Yeah. Like, do you mean it? There are knives in this room, so he could. Um, and at that point, six and um, six, uh, two and six changed their vote, and now we're at more than even split. We're at six six. This is where um, the awareness of how a knife is used comes into it, right? That's right. Well, 
No, I think that's later. Next up is, it. I think, The Alibi, the movies. So, juror number oh, four, yeah. that's E.G. Mm-hmm. Marshall, very stoic, hasn't sweat at all. And this has been called out by jurors. Right. Like, do you ever sweat? And he's like, no. no. Um, he's like, I don't think that he wouldn't have remembered the movie that he just went and e. to. And E.G. Marshall is playing, okay, so the people who are opposing um, number eight's explorations into yes. the, this are for the most part just kind of irrational, angry people. Yes. Number 10 and number, you know. Uh, yeah, 10 and 3 specifically. Yeah. So Ed Begley and Lee Cobb, oh, who are both also very obviously racist, mm-hmm. and that they both have some speeches. Right. So he, um, the of the opposition to the idea that this boy is innocent, mm-hmm. Uh, E.G. Marshall's character is actually the most reasonable and the most, like, obviously intelligent and cultured. He's also probably the most successful person there, aside from Mr. Adman, maybe, because he's very presentable. He's in his glasses. He's in his. T- he's just very. And again, like you're saying, he's cool as a cucumber. Cool as a cucumber. Yeah. And Jar Eight asks him, "What was the last movie you saw? You know, well, when was the last time you went to the movies? And it was the previous mm-hmm. week." And he saw, what was it? What what movie did you see? And he can't remember. And he's like, well, uh, do you remember who was in it? And he can't remember. Right. And that's when the bead of sweat comes the down. His, of sweat. Right. <laughs> um, uh, down his brow. And then uh, jurors two and three talk about the 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 angle of the weapon, the the stab came from above. The father was taller than the son, mm-hmm. and it's a switchblade. Now, a, this this kid had been arrested for knife fighting previously. Like he he knows about knives. This is right. a switchblade. Switchblades are typically used at an at an upward angle because of the way that they right. the the way that you you can't really put your there's nothing to prevent you if you have your hands on the sides from your thumb slipping over and hitting the blade. But also, you pop it out. Like, there's a there's right. a mechanism to pop it out, so you're holding it blade up. Right. You'd have to take the blade in the other hand right. and then flip your hand around mm-hmm. to do a downward motion, like an ice pick type right. motion, which is what happens. I'm so proud of you. I knew about ice picks before I met you. So no, 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 no. But <laughs> it's called the ice pick grip. It is okay. So that, but that's uh-huh. the kind. That's because the two know, main re, grips are re, like re, it's a it's a psycho. The ice pick grip and the hammer grip. Okay. One of them you're holding it like a hammer, yeah. and the other one you're holding it like an ice pick. And the ice pick grip typically is people who are like you'll see that in cases where a husband stab or wife stab their husband's husband stab or any kind of emotional. Okay. Kind of thing that's generally multiple. Right. It, yes. It's over like and over and over it's again. not scientific. It's it, just something that's done out of rage. Out of rage, yeah. But you've for with the switchblade, you've got to make you've got to yeah. change hands. Like it's a whole thing. And the whole thing about a switchblade is the idea is the person who you're stabbing doesn't know you have it until right. it's inside of them. Right. right. Like you have it down at your side or whatever, mm-hmm. and you. Do whatever flick the mechanism, flip open, it yeah. out, and then you jab up. Right. It's like an uppercut. It's usually done right underneath the 
like the, the ribs, right? The so ribs, it goes right. into the heart, right? So that is, and and this kid would know that. So they're like, they, <laughs> Lee Cobb gets like lowers himself and and takes the knife. And they, they're like, he could have done it this way. Mm-hmm. And he's aiming right. at Henry Fonda's chest. And they're, and they're like, are you going <laughs> to... Are you okay with this? Because it looks like he's going to... Uh, and then somebody else refers to that knife as the murder weapon. And they're like, oh, no, that's not the murder weapon. That's the one that he brought. We already returned the murder weapon. Once again, indicating mm-hmm. it's not this unique item that right. couldn't have been uh, obtained by another person in the in the um uh, in the community and then you know while you could stab like that it doesn't make a lot of sense for that weapon to be used in that way by right. somebody who knew what they were doing with that weapon like yeah. He could have done an underhanded yeah, jab under the ribs, as you said, and hit the heart, and he would have known that that's what was going to happen. Why he would go above through the rib cage, right? which is, it's harder to stab somebody oh, yeah. through their rib cage. That's why the rib cage is there, <laughs> to protect the heart. And that is when seven changes his vote. Twelve and one also change their votes. There's a there's another um, in as they're going. There's another discussion about the woman across the hall and her her testimony, which was she saw from she was tossing and turning in her room uh-huh. on this very hot day. On this very hot n- night, right, it was night. midnight. She's been in bed for at least an hour. And she looked out the window as the train was finishing its passing, and she saw this neighbor boy stab his father. Now they talk about how she had two divots in her nose, because my first thought was, did she wear glasses? Mm-hmm. Because here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a thing from a girl who wears glasses. If I'm in bed, I don't have my glasses on. I can't see shit. Now... This woman had divots in her nose, which we see after after um, Juror Four's sweat starts uh-huh. after he can't remember the movie. He yeah. takes off his glasses and he has very deep inset divots um, on the, either side of the bridge of his nose from his glasses, and there and three of them remember that she had that too. Yeah, she and wasn't it's really provoked by the old man at this point. Yes, who's now very actively along with number eight. Going, wait a second, no. All of this is bullshit. Right. Everything we were told is a lie. <laughs> um, and they figure out, or they, they think this woman wants to appear younger and prettier than she actually is, and she didn't wear her glasses into the courtroom. She's a glasses wearer because she could see the divots on her face, and she would not have been wearing glasses in mm-hmm. at home. It's a 60 foot, right. 60 feet from window to window. And so she would not have been able to positively identify who she was to seeing. Me, but right. we don't know what her vision is. That's the thing. Right. She could wear reading glasses and this is not but a the, thing. To me, the biggest problem is that she was looking through the windows of an L train. Yeah. And it, it, as they pointed out, it takes a few seconds to pass by. She yeah. claims that she saw it through the last two last cars. Last two cars, yeah. And I'm going, how does she, how are you aware of that? And maybe if you're, 
a person who lives in Chicago or New York. Oh, and New York. Can, well, I mean, I assume she's used to right. these trains going by every 20 minutes, so, but, you know. But, um... And it, it, the, uh, the, the train was empty and the lights were right. off, which is which they did indicate she would have because been Because at that time through. of night, you yeah. would just be shuttling back and forth to get back to the station. But the fact that the train was going by is also key to that, that downstairs neighbor, yeah. because he says he heard... Right. I'll kill you, and then the body hit the floor. Right. And if the train was going by, the train is loud as fuck and literally right outside the windows. There's no way you would have heard clearly mm-hmm. any words. You might have heard... Right. And then... But you you didn't clearly hear, and you certainly couldn't pick out a voice over a train going no, by outside. And... So the all of these things mm. sort of snowball into everybody but ten, three, and one, I think, switching their votes. Yeah, three three guilty votes left at, at this point, and juror ten at Begley erupts. He and this is probably the most powerful other than Lee Cobb at the very end, but the way that this is handled in the yeah. film is extremely powerful, and I would imagine it is very powerful on on a stage, stage as yes. well. Because the way that Sidney Lumet decides to direct this film is really interesting. He just goes on this racial, mm-hmm. racist, it's not racial, it's racist. Look, let's talk facts. Tirade. These people are born to lie. Yeah. As how they are, and no intelligent man uh, is going to tell me otherwise. They don't know what the truth is. They are different. They act different. I've lived with them all my life. You can't believe a word they say. You know what I mean. They're born liars. And it's, yeah. And at this, as mm. he's going off on this, thinking that he's talking to like-minded individuals, right? Because right? they're all white men, so they must agree with him. They, two or one... Stand up uh-huh. and turn their backs to him. Yeah, it's wild to see. <laughs> yeah, it's, that was really because you think about, and this is why Sydney Lumet is Sydney Lumet. You think about how difficult it would be to try to do something that indicates how they're just dropping him away from the whole group in that room. And that gesture in itself, just like even when E.G. Marshall and Jack yeah. Warden are the only two that stay seated at the table. Right. Every other one of them, and you and you pull back into basically the corner of the room, right? The mm-hmm. camera's basically in the corner of the room. And this, this we should say, it's not shot as a one shot, but a lot of it is right. single shots where right, exactly. somebody will stand from one side of the room, be followed around to the other side of the room, another person will stand from where they're seated, and and that one that we followed will sit down and the scene will continue from there. There are cuts, but there are not a lot of cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, yeah, it, the, 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 the camera sort of retreats to the corner of the room and then we just see this conference table in the middle as these men stand up one by one, take a couple of steps away from the mm-hmm. table and turn their back to him. And he has gotten up and walked to get some water and then walked back and realizes that he's... Yeah. Alone. Alone. And even the people who are still sitting at the table are not. They're shaking their heads. They're like, they're not, they're not like, yeah, (laughs) that's not what's happening. After all of the 
sound and the eyeglass talk, mm-hmm. everybody has switched their votes. Basically, they've determined that they can't believe that each of these witnesses were 100% yeah. right in what they what they testified to. And so they have doubt that this is absolutely what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and juror number three, Lee Jacob, is the only one yeah. left. And then he... He gets like five minutes. Yeah, he he's able to give this really. He strings these different right. arguments together and just he keeps and, and it's like um, it's like he's at the bottom of a pit, scrabbling up right. a hill, and he gets a little and then slides back down and gets a little up and then he slides back down. Because he can't defend his points either. Because these things that he is bringing up, yeah, have already sort of been answered. Like, no, there's doubt about that. No, there's doubt about this. And he kind of half-heartedly brings them up. And then he's talking about um, ungrateful sons and how they need to be punished. And you're like, oh, (laughs) so you want to straight up murder your own child and you can't? Is that what what we're doing here? Is that really what we're doing? He just rips up shreds of pictures. He pulls up this this photograph that is clearly important to him because he has it at jury duty with him Mm. and he tears it into shreds. And then he, like, just starts sobbing. Yeah. And mutters under, like, almost under his breath, not guilty. And we're at unanimous for not guilty. From one. Right. From one who just said, I just want to discuss it. And it's not even 7 o'clock. They haven't even called for dinner. So it's been less than two hours in this jury room, which is insane. (laughs) That's the other insane thing. And then the defendant is found not guilty off the screen, and we see them leaving at the end of the, the thing. Oh, during the the um, all of this, a storm has started outside. Right. Didn't break the heat, but they had to close the windows because this gusts of torrential rain were pouring in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a little... You see them leaving the courthouse, and there's a tiny epilogue where eight and nine introduce each other for the first by names mm-hmm. for the first time. And it's Davis, uh, Henry Fonda's name mm-hmm. is Davis, and uh, nine, his name is McCardle, and that's it. And yeah. then they part ways on the on the steps of the courthouse, and that's the end of the movie. Was it thrilling? I think it was. I I resist the term courtroom drama. It's not a courtroom drama. But there's yes, not another... Right. That is the... Cl- I guess that's the closest thing, right? That, there's not another, like, genre that it would fit mm. into. But, yeah. But, y'all, don't... You cannot... Don't do... Don't be like these jurors. They did not do what you're supposed to do in a jury room. But yeah, it is thrilling. Some good acting. Zero wins on the Academy Awards for this one. Bridge on the River Kwai really, really cleaned up this year. Yeah. So uh, it didn't win a lot of awards that way, but uh, it's quite good. Yeah. It's only an hour and 36 minutes long. Like it's, it's, it was, and it's, we watched it on Tubi. Right. 
which had ads, which is fine. <laughs> no, you needed a break in some ways. This was yeah. very intense. It's very intense. It is very intense for having no actual violence or anything uh-huh. in it. Just angry men, as the title may <laughs> have indicated to you. Um, I think the most upsetting piece is, yeah, Henry Fonda drying his face on that towel <laughs> in the bathroom. That's rough. Oh, also the racism. <laughs> also that. Um, there is racism in it. Um, there, in the remake, I believe, we, we've talked about it, and I think they make the defendant black in that one, mm-hmm. and they do put black juror, at least one black juror on the in the remake, so they, they update uh-huh. it a little bit. This, once again, white men on a jury, which is also actually not a demographic that a lot of people like on a jury. They want women. We're soft-hearted, you see. Really? <laughs> yes, that's what I hear. <laughs> so, um, but, you know. Yeah, this was it, was, it was really good watching this film, and it reminded me of the kind of television writing you got when Rod Serling was working. Sure. And um, Patty Chayefsky was writing for television, mm. and there was just amazing stuff being done and people would get around the television set on a particular night to watch what was being done on Playhouse 90 or on Studio One. And uh, some of the stuff that came out of there was made into movies later because it was remarkable. Um, I, I, Yeah, I, I think you're right that this might be the second golden age of television in terms of the variety of things that you can watch. And, um, but God, the writing was amazing. It really was. When that's what you had to fall back on, you're essentially watching a play that's being crafted for you, the audience, and it's going to be an hour and a half, and it's going to be amazing. But, um, I was, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's quite good. Um, So if you can see the original, recommend doing that. Um, Next week, The Thing... From another world. Is that what it's called? Yep. Another planet, another world. Another world. Thing from another world. Which I believe is on something called Pluto TV. However. So that, or maybe Vimeo or YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's on those. I don't know that it's. I, I recorded it for us right off of oh, AMC. That's right. And it, it I mean, excuse me, TCM. TCM. And so, um. If you have a TCM so, app, it might be available. I yes, don't know. or if you have um, Dish and and On Demand, it may mm-hmm. be On Demand. TCM puts yeah. a lot of their stuff on, on, on Demand. So, yeah, so that's what we're going to watch. You're going to leave the discussion next mm-hmm. time because it's, it's your baby. I have never... I have seen this movie. Have I, have I seen this I movie? I don't know that you have. I feel like I've seen a clip from this movie, <laughs> but I don't know that I've seen the whole movie. I think that's... Right. I feel like there's a fire stunt that I have seen. There's a fire stunt that you've seen because it is the most it's the first major fire stunt done. Okay. And it is absolutely ridiculously dangerous. Yes, and they put him in asbestos to keep him safe. So that guy was just in danger. Didn't keep him safe. We'll talk about asbestos more next week. Uh, you remember when I talked about working in civil litigation? Asbestos. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got back to back. Uh, personal experiences personal that, you, experience that you will contribute and, to our and podcast expertise. Yes. So we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, in the meantime, do you have anything that you want to recommend? I have not this week spent, unfortunately, a lot of time 
watching stuff or listening to stuff. There's a podcast I'm trying to listen to that you recommended to me that I can't seem to download on my phone. Yes, um, I'll get you updated with that. Uh, and um, which I that's what I'm going to recommend. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what would you're going to recommend? Yeah, I'm going to yes, recommend. Uh, it's a podcast called Stuck with Damon Young, who is uh, was I I got to know him from his writing uh, on Very Smart Brothers, but he's written mm. for all manner of publications in the United States. He is what it says a very smart brother, but this he's a black man who is right who is making a podcast about the things that get stuck in his head. So mm -hmm. there's an episode about uh, shit my dad did. Right. Uh, there's an episode about the one minute man about sex. There's an episode about religion, which is the one that I sent to you. Right. Um, so, and, and the way that the episodes are, they're about 40 minute episodes. They start with a story from his life that, that got him thinking about this topic. And then he talks to other people about, whatever the topic is. Um, and then we hear more of the story and then he sort of wraps it up. It's, it's nicely produced. Um, I like listening to podcasts by people who are different than I am. Yeah. I, I do not have a black man's experience, um, but I do have an experience of sex in our culture. So it's interesting. It's very interesting to me to hear a raw uh, perspective that isn't for clout or mm -hmm. for appearances about these concerns and then these insecurities that we all have. Right. Um, and I think it's powerful that he is doing this as a public black man. Right. Um, and saying, you know, look, I don't know. Like <laughs> a well, lot of times I don't know. That was, um, that's something that uh, I think Spike Lee was trying to cover in Jungle Fever. Yeah, which is I've about never seen Jungle Fever. The, so and and he got into a conflict with uh, the leading lady, and then there was all sorts of issues, because his whole notion was, um, I want to do a film about the sexual mythology that attracts some white women to some black men. Uh-huh. There's a myth that's of course, existing yeah. and whatever. And it's like, I got interested in it because... Technically, I'm Latin, right? Right. So there's so, so equally, there's, there's that, a myth. Yeah. I mean, I remember mm -hmm. going to one of the parties with you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the parties that were held by your law firm. Mm -hmm. The Christmas party. And this mm -hmm. woman just and attempted to bodily pull me off the table to dance with her. Mm -hmm. Because she assumed I could dance because I was... And that's like another stereotype. Yeah. Right? No, I don't dance. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't play guitar. And it's funny how... When you're in a particular group that has been seen this way by yeah. other people, you're constantly getting this, this sort of stuff. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. I think you'd like you'll like the show. Yeah, no, I think I think the show is really really well done uh -huh. so far. I think there are like nine episodes so right. far. I heard about. I I learned that um they played an episode of it on on a, the Reply All feed mm -hmm. because it's also a Gimlet podcast. Right. Uh. So. Uh, as I'm having a love-hate relationship with Reply All and dealing with my feelings about that podcast, they gave me this to think about, mm. and so I've been listening to that, and it's very, it's it's very good. Um, and so I recommend that. Okay. I will link it in the show notes. Uh, until next week, uh, if you have questions or comments or concerns or have an idea of what we can watch, because apparently we're not watching anything. 
we finished a bunch of stuff we've already mm-hmm. recommended. That's the other thing. Right. Night, good. Julia, good. Done. Both done. <laughs> like, right. Uh, so. And we still have, what, what do we have left that we haven't? Severed. I think we're still Severance. doing. Severance. Severance. Yes. And um, them. We're still. And them. Yeah. We're in the middle of a bunch of stuff that we have, just haven't. Mm-hmm. I've been getting to the end of a day staring at a computer screen and I don't want to look at, look a, at a screen. TV screen anymore. Yeah. And that's just, and also I've just, I'm, when I'm tired or in the fits of a depressive state, following narrative is difficult. So yeah. I do what I do for the show and then that's what I can do. Mm-hmm. So, um, so sorry for my broken brain. I'll work on it. But if you have questions or comments or concerns, you can email us at uh, latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. Yeah, we're still over there at latecomerspod. And you can find us on Facebook by searching latecomerspod in the search bar. Until next week, I would like to remind you to take your medicine. Actually, please. I would like to remind you to take your medicine. Yes, both of I us am now. on a thousand milligrams of fluconazole. Yeah. And uh, every day, every day, which is <gasps> 10 times the normal dose, apparently. Yes, something like and that. And if I don't take that, uh, whatever is eating my spine might come back and devour the rest of me. So, yes, take yes, your medicine take for God's sake. And we want to remind you better, better late, late than, than never. never.